This is Crossing Phase, the first podcast featuring a Christian and a Muslim talking religion and politics. My name is Matt Hawkins. I'm a former policy director for the Southern Baptist Convention. And my co-host is John Penna, founder and director of Muslims for Muslims, a new organization that you'll continue to hear more about as we go. Uh, As always, you're available to listen to podcasts wherever you can find podcasts. And, of course, we're here on YouTube if you'd like to see our faces. Uh, But a lot of people might uh, see us and then go back to the audio edition, uh, which we don't mind. Uh, Visit us on Twitter, uh, on Facebook, and on Instagram. Uh, Crossing Phase are easy to find. Uh, John Pinna, how's upstate New York? Upstate New York's not too bad. I mean, we, there might have been a little bit of fumbling in the beginning of this. This is the first time I've actually hit the record button. So Matthew's been responsible for it. We're testing my capabilities. And, and so uh, right. uh, any, any kind of issues that happen are, are a Turkish flaw, as we, as we know, as we, we're referencing <laughs> it's previous, all, it's previous shows. It's all John's fault today. <laughs> it is all my, all my fault. There's no doubt about it. But it's, it's, getting, um, it's getting cooler up here. So it's, uh, we always talk about the weather. And uh, the drama of the family is substantial. And profound. So, uh, so and we, we, we have a, a really interesting guest today. Uh, we have uh, Mr. George Sorial. So, uh, and, and I'm very lucky and, and, and feel you know, very, very, it's very gracious of him to, to participate. We've spent um, the better part of a, maybe a, a year and a half, maybe two years now, interfacing with each other and, rela- and, and working on a number of, of issues. Uh, and initiatives with each other, uh, all in the peripheral, nothing super major, but I've grown to, uh, to uh, um, think of, 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 of George as, a, as an old friend and acquaintance um, for many reasons. Um, his path in uh, uh, private industry all the way through to, um, uh, to where he is now, uh, he is, uh, was a senior vice president of the Trump companies. Um, in various capacities, has supported the president uh, in his business career, uh, is the, the author of uh, The Real Deal, my decade of fighting battles with uh, and, and winning wars with, the, with Trump, uh, and has transitioned from the business world into uh, the government relations and international development world uh, to, to help leverage his relationship uh, with the president to defend vulnerable populations. Uh, he's a Coptic Christian and, uh, and I, I don't, I, were you born in, you born in Egypt? Your father was from Egypt. It was actually, John, uh, first of all, thank you, John and Matthew, uh, yeah. for having me here. I really appreciate it. And, and John, uh, thank you for that warm welcome. That's very kind of you. But no, I, I was actually born, you know, people always ask me that question and it's a seemingly simple question. Where are you from? And I kind of snicker. Um, I have three different passports. Uh, I was actually born in England, and shortly after my birth, uh, I spent almost a year in Egypt, uh, then went back to England and eventually immigrated to the United States when I was two years old. Um, like many of us, uh, my parents had nothing. My, granted, my father had an education, but he had nothing, and we left England by boat, came across the Atlantic, arrived in New York. Uh, and, and the rest is history. So to answer your question, John, I was, I was actually born in Norwich, England. Norwich, England. Well, I went to Norwich University, Norwich, but this is from Vermont. And when I wear the, when I wear the sweatshirt, everybody always says, Norwich, England? And, uh, and I have to say, ah, not that sophisticated, you know. But, uh, you know, we have these interesting stories, I, I think, that, that um, I, I always wonder. I know your father was from Egypt, and I go, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to ask him. But uh, 
we're very blessed to have you on. It's, uh, it, it's very meaningful for you to take the time. Uh, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about your, your, your story. Um, I, you know, I kind of look at you as sort of a brother uh, because I left the very lucrative uh, uh, career in the construction industry. I had two clients, the National Association of Home Builders and the U.S. Department of Commerce, spent 10 years uh, in the boom years, 1999-2009, and then left and then went into uh, uh, really advocacy work. And um, I always say, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was when we had all the money in the world, working for the largest industry in the country, $988 billion industry, we didn't care about you know, a process and laws and stuff. We were just doing whatever. But and I, it, all that knowledge of, of legislation and process really mattered when you work for nonprofits. Um, but maybe you could tell us about that journey, about how you started, um, and I, I think it was about 13 years at the Trump companies, and then transitioned into uh, where you are now and, and, and leveraging your uh, personal and professional relationship with the president to, to help these populations. Sure. I mean, I, I, you know, I'll just be very candid. I mean, my, my life was definitely not scripted. Um, I was raised like many immigrant families that everything was education, education, education. You know, the only thing I really knew about my, my father, again, um, he was a surgeon and that was my path. All my cousins were doctors, all our friends were doctors. Uh, my father came to the United States with my mother in 1970 when the United States at the time was facing uh, a crisis. There was a shortage of physicians. There was a shortage of surgeons. Uh, if my memory is correct, Congress created a special visa, and they actually came over to Europe and recruited my father and a group of his friends to come to the United States. They really never had any intentions of coming to the United States. They were very happy living in England. So my whole time in high school, I was going to, doc to, to be a doctor. When I ended up going to college after the first year or two, I had this shocking revelation that I wasn't really very good at science. I wasn't really very interested in science. Um, I was able to muddle my way through my freshman year, but when I was confronted with subjects like organic chemistry, I said to myself, you know, it's really time for me to think about doing something else. Uh, I was very into history uh, and religion. I was a double major. I was a classics major. Uh, and also I picked up a psychology major uh, as well. Uh, in retrospect, if I could do it again, I probably would have focused on something like theology. Um, but I came out of college. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, I took a couple of years off, and during the day for a year, I worked for a judge, and then at night, I worked for a hospital. Uh, I was actually, I was a phlebotomist. Uh, I was also an EKG technician. So I did this for a couple of years. I also worked for a law firm. You know, after I spent a year working for a judge in Newark, New Jersey, I worked for a, a firm in Jersey City, and I still continued to work at the hospital. Um, when I look back on it, I mean, they were really long days. I mean, I was 21, 22 years old and, you know, I was leaving my house at, you know, quarter to eight, not getting home you know, until midnight. But in that two year journey, I discovered that, you know, look, I'll, I'll, I'll go to law school. Uh, I, I couldn't say that I really loved it, but it seemed like a logical pro progression. I was lucky that I had that option. 
Um, you know, my parents took great care of me. I ended up going to law school, JD, MBA at Boston University. I came out like many people. Um, I, I, I worked for the government. I was a county counsel. I did prosecution work uh, in the area of uh, violent sex crimes. Uh, I did a lot of work under Megan's Law. Uh, if you remember, that was 95, 96, yes. uh, where Megan's Law was really thriving and states and municipalities were creating task force to basically take violent sex offenders who'd maxed out their prison sentences and put them in mental institutions. So it was kind of a challenging couple of years. Uh, I ended up, uh, like many people that do that, just kind of getting tired of it. Uh, I moved on to um, a firm named Dave Pitney, and then I ended up going to another law firm called the Codis Fitzpatrick, and it was shortly after 9-11, so it was maybe the end of 2001, the beginning of 2002, that I was working on a real estate deal. We were actually representing a group of Wall Street investors that had grabbed John DeLorean's estate uh, in Morris County, New Jersey, out of bankruptcy. And they were trying to build a golf course and a resort and some homes, and they weren't really doing very well. Um, along comes Trump, buys them out. So at the groundbreaking ceremony, you know, I grew up in New York and you know, primarily northern Jersey. Trump was always a larger-than-life character. Uh, you know, anybody who grew up in that area, you know, Trump was across the river doing all sorts of things. I mean. You know, we, grew, Martin, we grew up with Trump. We grew up, we were socialized, you know, as yeah, New York. I, I, I went and lost monies in his casinos. I mean, I, you know, I was the kid that drove to Atlantic City on the weekend and, uh, you know, as soon as I was old enough. But there he is right in front of me. Now, I have an interesting background that my, my father is a Christian from Egypt, Coptic Orthodox, and my mother is actually Scottish. My mother is Scottish from a very small remote island uh, on the northwest coast called the Isle of Lewis, uh, born in a town called Stornoway. Well, guess whose mother was also born in Stornoway? Um, oh. President Trump. President. Oh, wow. I walk up to him. I, he, he's helping himself to some shrimp. I mean, I'll, I'll really never forget this. And I, I walked up to him and I, I said, you know, Mr. Trump, nice to meet you. I'm George Soriel. I was part of the legal team at Dakota's Fitzpatrick, blah, blah, blah. I said, you know, is it really, is it true that your mom was born in Stornoway? Now, remember in those days, we didn't have, you know, you couldn't go on Wikipedia. It wasn't that easy to, to get information. So he looked at me and he said, yeah, you know, my mother's from Stornoway. What, what, what do you know about Stornoway? So I told him, well, that's where my mother was born. And I, I probably spent the first 25 years of my life spending my summers there. And that kind of struck up very nice, warm conversation. During the course, he found that I was looking to buy an apartment in New York. And he gave me a number and he said, look, it, it was a Saturday morning. And he said, I want you to call this person, this number on Monday. And I want you in Trump World Tower, tallest residential building in the world. I want you in that building. Now, you know, John and Matthew, you've probably had these experiences in life where you bump into people at a meeting and they say to you, eh, give me a call. I'll see if I can help you. And nothing ever comes out of it. But I called him Monday morning and two, three days later, I was sitting in his office signing a contract uh, to purchase a two bedroom apartment. So that really <laughs> struck. I mean, that, that's a that's a true story as it happened. 
Uh, and and the, the President Trump or Trump, uh, you know, President Trump has introduced you to your wife, right? I, I, did. Yeah, my, my uh, you know, I, I started to do some legal work for him here and there. He would invite me, you know, out socially. And it was, this went on for probably three, four years. And then, you know, five years around 2006, he called me into his office one day and Don, Ivanka and Eric were there and he was very excited. He had floor plans out on his his desk. And he said, I just bought 1500 acres of land. Uh, why don't you come and work for me? We're going to build a golf course in Scotland. This is going to be great. We're going to honor our mothers. It'll be fun. Uh, you know, I said, look, the problem is, I mean, I was at the time a corporate lawyer. Uh, my background was really m and I, I told him, look, I, I, I've never even played golf. Um, you know, where I grew up in New Jersey, a guy that had an Egyptian father was not going to really get into, you know, it didn't really fit to any of the country clubs. I mean, it just was nothing that I, I, I grew up with. But I came on board, and John, you're right. Uh, I ended up meeting my, my wife there. Um, and I worked in the company for many years. Uh, my, I was executive vice president and counsel. Uh, I did a fair amount of legal work, but my primary role there was in, in development, site acquisition. Um, then I would actually oversee the entire planning process. And once we gained permits and approvals, I would hire the development team and actually oversee construction as well. Uh, so I wore many hats at the organization. Uh, and, you know, again, I, my, my wife worked very closely. My wife was his assistant. Um, so I, I met her there. Uh, and when he became president, I got pulled back really into a more legal function again, uh, and this kind of leads into how I, I got to where I am now, uh, but I was made uh, the first chief compliance counsel to the Trump organization, and I worked with a, a really skilled team to put together the series of trusts that the company's operating under now and implement a global compliance program, and I was really the guy initially uh, that handled many of the inquiries from Congress uh, on emoluments, conflicts of interests, uh, some of the investigations you've read about, uh, until I came out of the company about a year and a half ago when my book was published. And I continue um, to be very involved with him uh, on many levels, uh, many different projects in the White House. Um, I remain very close to him, really. What I, what I always say is, aside from my own mother and father, Nobody has done more for me in life than President Trump. I mean, you have a, a very different view than what the media talks about and, and so forth. And, and I, my interaction with you and, and, the, and, and really the administration over those last three years has been very different as well, because I've collaborated on a number of, of issues and, and, uh, and agenda items uh, and criminal justice and international religious freedom and so forth. So you know, I think your story is compelling. You know, who you are and where you come from is as a result of uh, the president's uh, in his private life, life and, and professional life working with you. Um, but maybe, can you give us a funny anecdote? Can you give us something, you know, like what's your, what's your Trump moment? You know what I mean? Where like, you know, he was, you know, that's, that's something that's a little, little bit, uh, it's, you know, something that we don't know that's, that's, that's sexy, you know, that would be funny. You, uh, I, you know, I don't know if it's sexy, but it was a, you know, a really touching moment. I mean, I, oh, over the years we traveled a lot. I, I was always talking to him about my experiences in the Middle East. And uh, I think he was kind of on some level uh, fascinated by the stories I told him about the Coptic church and the things that I'd seen and done. Cause I, I did spend a lot of time 
in Egypt, my parents were really adamant about keeping myself and my sister close to our respective families. So every year we would spend uh, four to five weeks around Christmas time uh, in Egypt, in Cairo, and then I would spend my summers um, in Europe, uh, in Scotland. But something that really he did that really touched me when, when he was elected, and I, I don't think I'm being disingenuous. I mean, it wasn't exactly something that people in the company thought would happen. Uh, I had confidence in him. Uh, I knew that he was certainly qualified, but in my heart of hearts, and I was honest with him uh, when I was asked the question, am I going to collect it? I, I'd say, look, I, I think it's a long shot. Uh, I would consistently give the answer. If you're going to run from your office in Fifth Avenue, I don't see it happen. If you're going to get out on the road and campaign, I think you'll do it. Yeah. That's what he did. So when he was elected, there was a real just beyond, you know, the, the, the first three or four days, there was complete euphoria. You know, everybody was kind of pinching themselves. Like, did this happen? Yes, it happens. I mean, I, I remember having a call with the president uh, Wednesday morning after the election. I, I reached him at about 930. I was down in Florida uh, working on some election fraud issues. But I said to him, you know, I guess I have to call you president now for the rest of your life. I mean, it was just it was unbelievable. <laughs> but the following week, everybody was summoned to New York. And we were all, you know, my office was on the 26th floor of Trump Tower, right down the hall from his office. And there was such excitement going on. There was so much activity. Uh, there were so many people there. I mean, it was literally a fascinating thing to have an inside view to. A government was being formed. But amidst all this chaos, he called me to his office and he said, George, I want you to, I want you to reach out to your pope. I said, okay, I'm, I'm happy to do that. He said, I, I want you to tell him, I, I know that there's been a lot of problems with killings and discrimination against Christians in Egypt. And I want you to tell your Pope that things are going to be different for you now. Things are going to be different for everybody now. You know, I'm going to be watching. And I ended up facilitating a fascinating dialogue. I mean, if you think about it, you know, the Coptic Orthodox Pope, uh, Pope Tawadros and Donald Trump, Probably, I don't know if you could find two people that are more different on every level, but they struck up a friendship and there was a whole series of letters going back and forth. And I'm still optimistic that uh, at some point uh, there's an open invitation for him to come to the White House. I think that'll happen. But I was really touched by that. And I, I, I think, I don't know, you know, John, if that's a you know, something, no. sexy. but I, I, I think it's something that when I tell that story, people are, you know, fascinated that amidst all that, it gives you a little insight into his heart. Uh, and it gives you, uh, you know, a, a side of him that we may not often see in his tweets or his television appearances. Um, he's a very, very different person than I think he's portrayed by the mainstream media. I mean, I appreciate the story. It, 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 you know, I, I, international religious freedom is something that's this the cornerstone of this administration and enshrined in the NSS. And I, you know, spent some time helping draft those that words that go in the NSS. But it's a priority, the national security strategy. So I appreciate you telling the story because there's there is a you have a, a insight and a window into the person, um, which is very different than what everyone else sees. Um, and you know, especially me. I even though I interact with the, with with 
with this administration. I've only flown in a few times and in Iraq shook a hand did this and that, and that with the president a few times, but not nothing that that has really um, allowed me to get to know the man other than the New York view of him. So I appreciate you taking the time to, to, to share that with us. No, it's my pleasure, but I mean, George, um, go ahead, Matthew. Sorry. Okay. That's all right. Um, I, I was going to say, I'd like to learn more about um, your experience growing up in the Coptic faith. Uh, sounds pretty unique given that you, you grew up uh, stateside and in, in Europe. Uh, and yet um, seem to have a real connection to uh, the Coptic church in Egypt. And and, uh, so just curious if you want to share a little bit more about um, what that was like growing up. And uh, for for listeners who might not be familiar uh, with the Coptic church, maybe uh, kind of the broad strokes about what sets it apart or kind of what makes it unique within the rest of Christianity. Sure. Well, our church was founded in the first century by St. Mark. Uh, one of the authors of the Gospels, and we have an uninterrupted line of popes uh, since St. Mark. I, I believe now Pope Tawadros is our 118th pope. Uh, I might be off by a year or two, but I, uh, that sounds right. Uh, we're an Eastern Orthodox Church, and, you know, I, I think people always ask me, I mean, I, I, when you grow up with something, um, you sort of take it for granted. It's all you know, and right. I you know, it, it had a very powerful impact on me, I, I think most specifically in the area of faith. And I, I think like many immigrant families, um, it wasn't really until I went to college that I even spent time with people outside of my community. Uh, obviously, there were some exceptions, people that lived, you know, across the street from me. But pretty much when I grew up, I spent all my time, uh, our community is completely centered around the church. Uh, the church was the center of all life, of all activity. Your friends all went to the same church. Your entire being rotated around the church with the priest being, you know, your, your father, your spiritual advisor. Um, but I, I, I think at a very young age, and I should actually take a few steps back, my mother was Scottish, and my mother was raised uh, as a Presbyterian, but when she met my father, she, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say converted, but she was baptized Coptic, uh, learned to speak Arabic. Uh, it's funny, my mother is fluent in English, Gaelic, and Arabic, wow. uh, and, you know, spent a fair amount of time in Egypt, so we were completely raised in the Coptic church. Um, but I, I think what, what the church did for me was give me an unshakable faith. Um, I don't know exactly how, and it's actually, it's a subject that I reflect on. How did I, how did I get this faith? Um, you know, did I, did I see anything physical and tangible? You know, maybe perhaps I, I, I didn't see, you know, Christ or St. Mary, but I just was raised in an environment of trust and faith uh, and I really, I, I, I knew nothing else, and I, it gave me an unshakable foundation, uh, even during, you know, difficult years, teenage years. Um, I always consider myself an American, uh, and I love America, and it's something that my father would say to me all the time, you're lucky America is the envy of the world, you're lucky you're here. Uh, and actually, you know, to digress for a second, uh, one of the things I lament about most today with everything that's going on is that people seem to have rejected that. Okay. There's a lot of things going on that I don't agree with, 
But what really bothers me the most is people here, especially in the context of what we're talking about, religious freedom, people take that privilege for granted. Okay, and I grew up watching a society where that really wasn't the case. Now, again, I think we can talk a little bit, you know, how did we get there? I don't know. Um, I, I, I've had these discussions with John before. Uh, my father's 85 years old. My father will be the first to tell you when he was a kid growing up in Cairo, there was no Muslims, there was no Jews, there was no Christians. I mean, I'm being facetious. Of course there were, but everybody was together. There was no tension. There was no harmony. People would celebrate religious holidays with each other without hesitation and embrace the joy. So I don't, I don't know how we got to this part, but, you know, again, I, I don't mean to be all over the place, but, you know, growing up and seeing what my family was dealing with in Cairo also gave me a profound sense of, you know, wow, these people are growing up in a tough environment of discrimination, uh, terrorism, uh, and, you know, killing, and they still keep their faith. And it just, it had a really deep impact on me, but it made me a very strong person. And I, you know, I still carry that with me today, uh, despite any challenge that I face. Uh, it's really, it's my faith and my belief in there are more important things coming in my future um, that give me the ability to face the challenges and really not worry. And I'm, I'm trying very hard now to instill those principles. I, I think as you move forward through generations, mm-hmm. it starts to get harder and harder to keep these traditions. So it's something that I'm wrestling with now. And, and is your background with the Coptic church, is that uh, something that contributed to your current passion for engaging international development and uh, in human rights or where did that passion? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was very involved with my church. Uh, I was an I ordained deacon uh, at a young age. So I served on the altar for many years and, um, mm-hmm. you know, I learned a lot about our mass and, and the hymns and the history of our church. I mean, it was something that it wasn't forced upon me. I, I just, I saw it and I was convinced and I embraced it. Um, you know, obviously like many kids, you go through, you know, your teenage years where, you know, you may stray, but I, I, I came back to it. It's, it's very strong uh, and living um, within me now. So I, I, I think, yes, I mean, I, you know, maybe getting to, you know, how did I end up in this situation? Um, I, I've been lucky. God's been good to me in life. Um, I've had a very interesting life. I've done a lot of good things. I've done fairly well. And when I came out of the organization and, you know, again, Matthew and, and, and John, I never expected any of this. Okay. I, you know, I lived a fairly simple life growing up. Um, you know, my, my, yes, my father worked hard and he did well and uh, we were provided for, but I, I didn't, contemplate the magnitude of what was going to happen to me. I never really expected to be involved with a person like Trump. And actually, funnily enough, um, when I was thinking about going to work for him, I was having a discussion with a priest that I was very close to, uh, who said, look, I think you should take the job and I think you should work with him. And one day he's going to ask you, you know, how did you get this way? How did you, how, how are you so honest and straightforward? And you know, how did you succeed? And you're going to tell him it's because of my faith. Uh, and that, that actually ended up happening. 
Um, but when I came out of the organization, I mean, really the genesis of that was uh, I'm, I'm, I was in the Oval Office one day and I was having a conversation with him and he was very upset about people coming in, meeting him for 10 minutes, going out and writing a book. And I said to him, you know, look, let me write a book. I'd like to write a book, just a reflection on the things I've done with you. Um, I wasn't really sure that anybody would find that interesting, but I was able to get uh, a contract with HarperCollins, uh, published a book. I just have a copy of it right here. Book came out last year. Uh, it was June 2019. And, you know, if I'm being honest, um, at that point, I'd already spent quite a amount of time wrangling with the Senate and the House. Uh, you'll remember with the 2018 elections, the Democrats took the House. Uh, my life was very difficult. Uh, I was constantly hit uh, with letters, subpoenas. It just really wasn't uh, what I signed up for. And I actually thought we weren't really doing much development as a company. So I had a big sit down with Don, Eric, uh, and the president. And uh, we all decided, look, I'm going to leave the company. Uh, I'm still going to support the campaign, which I do. I'm a surrogate. Uh, I also uh, raise money for them. Uh, I'm a fundraiser. But I was going to come out, do my own thing. And one of the things that I felt very passionately about was, look, I'm in a unique position right now. I have a good relationship, not with just with the president, but with many people in the administration. And I find myself not by design, but just by circumstance, this man that I worked with out of nowhere became president. And I said, this is going to be a great opportunity for me to really do something that I was passionate about. And really one of my passions, and I think it is a growth of my faith and not only my faith, but my experience was religious freedom. I never took it for granted. You know, the comments that I made earlier about this younger generation um, taking these things for granted, uh, something that I really, you know, it hurts me, it makes me, you know, stay up at night. So I sort of stumbled into this position and I said to myself, look, I still need to make a living, but I can devote now a chunk of my time to working in an area uh, to promote religious freedom, not just for Christians, you know, not just for cops, but for everybody. And, you know, look, we all disagree. I probably disagree with some things that you believe in, Matthew. I certainly disagree with some things that John probably, you know, holds, uh, you know, true. But that's okay. Okay. It's okay for us to disagree. That's what makes life interesting. We have to respect each other and we have to live with each other. And I, you know, as I mentioned, when we were kind of chatting before we began this podcast, you know, that's what I really want. I, I'm trying to figure out a way now where I can really devote most of my time towards fighting for these issues, fighting for the oppressed, using the access and the voice I have for whatever, even if it's this just tiny, small, if I, I can make a little bit of an impact, it's worth it. The, the, with, your, with the Coptic Christian Church, dignity of the human person is really important, and 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 you know it's a a, a major thread in, in your faith as it is mine. You know, we're we're cousins. You know, the Coptic Christians and the Ismaili community right. in, in Egypt. We work. We're there's it's almost very seamlessly. Um, and and <laughs> it's, lets us. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's the old people that they don't know if we're collaborating or what. But I, I you know when I was in when I was working with the American Islamic Congress, we were we were defending. Uh, the Coptic Christians uh, very passionately 
and we started this this international religious freedom agenda ten years you know ten years ago, and no one no one thought number one it would be part of it would be enshrined in the national security strategy and all these different things. Now everybody's jumped on board, but it was those were difficult years even within my own community when I was advocating for international religious freedom, and they were saying, oh, you want to know what we can. You know, I, th that's something that's that, that's that's for the NGOs to do. And as a, you know, American Muslims were focusing on other areas. Uh, now it's commonplace. Now it, it, there's there's a tremendous community working on international religious freedom. But your transition um, is is profound because from business, uh, guiding principles, ethics, and rules from the, your Coptic background. When I speak to you, and part of the reason why you and I have a relationship is you are always talking about not just your faith community, but you're talking about global community of vulnerable populations. So maybe you could touch upon some of the, 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 the elements that you've talked about with the president and how it's transitioned into actually real world um, uh, tangible results. I, I know we have a National Coptic Day, right? That's one of, that's something that was a, a profound moment, but how are those conversations go and, you know, how does the president receive them and what is actually kind of, where's that led to, you know? Well, he always, uh, you know, he always gives me the time and I, you know, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the, the national Coptic day. Uh, the genesis of that uh, was a very close friend of mine. Uh, another cop uh, who lives in Florida, uh, Nader Nice. He's also another lawyer. Uh, and I, I just helped facilitate uh, and made the introduction uh, to the white house and, you know, it was very good of the president to do that. But I, I think one thing that you have to give the president a lot of credit for is that for the first time, he's really brought these issues of religious freedom and religious oppression to the table and made them a part of his agenda. Uh, and I, 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 I think we cannot underestimate the enormity of what we're all doing right now, because I think in addition to there are parts of the world where Muslims are under attack, there's parts of the world where Christians are under attack, there's parts of the world where Jews are under attack. But what I think is really going on here is there's actually an even broader force that's really anti-God, that's anti-religion. And, you know, if we want to be honest and call it what it is, it's really evil. Um, there's the battle between good and evil. Now, I don't, to me, it doesn't matter, okay, whether you're born a Muslim or a Jew or a Christian, okay? A person of God is a person of God. And I, I, I think there's really an importance now for all faiths, okay? And I think when you use that term faith, it's, it's implicit that you're referring to a deity, a God. All people of faith need to get together and try to fight this force, these forces of evil. And I, I think you can, you can see a lot of what's going on in the United States. It's being held up and you know people are masquerading for some seemingly good causes. But when you really dig behind the surface a little bit, um, a lot of it is really anti-God. A lot of it is evil. Uh, and I, I think this administration has really fought those issues and brought them to the forefront. Um, I've spent a lot of time having discussions uh, about these types of matters uh, with the president. Um, and I, I've worked with, I haven't had a lot of, of interaction with the vice president, but I've had a lot of interaction with members of his team. 
And it's okay to sit in, in the White House with government people and have these discussions and try to figure out what to do about them. I think in past administrations, it's almost seen as you can't talk about God. You can't talk about faith. Somehow that's a violation of, you know, the separation of church and state, which I don't really believe, you know, that's the case. Hmm. Um, well, when, so, when you have people of faith, you know, it, it, that are working at globally and faith is a driver in conflict, faith, faith is a driver in humanitarian work. To ignore the cat component, in, and I know this is an argument that, that, that Matthew's uh, tribe echoes as well, it doesn't make any sense to not include that. I mean, cultural competency is important. Religious competency is important. I always, I mean, somebody who built a career in engagement modeling of collective cultures in an Islamic context, it's like, hello, you know, you, in order to talk to these people, you need to know about their faith backgrounds and, uh, and what drives them. Uh, and, and it can stem off conflict as well. Well, that's it. You, you really, you just hit the nail on the head, John. I mean, we, we have to know each other, um, you know, in, 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 in a more intimate way. And what I mean by that is we have to understand how our families work. We need to sit and break bread with each other. You know, how do we eat? How do we think? Uh, how, how do we celebrate our holidays? And what I see in my life, and it was funny, I, I, I was just, uh, I was in Washington over the weekend um, and I, I had to go to the White House. You know, I had my son with me and uh, afterwards I actually ended up taking to the Museum of the Bible and a um, large uh, African-American uh, gentleman wearing a Black Lives Matter shirt picked me up. So we just started to chat. And I said, look, I mean, do you really you know, do you understand what's going on with that movement? And I, I said, look, I, I don't believe, and I, I say this with all my heart, okay? I think you have fringe elements on either side that have their own agendas. And I, I don't think certainly none of them are, are godly agendas. But I think 95% of the people, I don't care what your race, race or your ethnicity or your religion, look at the basic cores. What do you want in your life? Okay, if somebody says to me, George, what do you want in my life? I want peace. I want to be able to work and, and, and grow and take care of my family. I want to take care of my wife and my children. I want them to grow up in a harmony, in a harmonic environment. Uh, I want them to be educated. And I, I obviously want them to have better lives than I do. I think irrespective of who you are, that's the answer that everybody's going to give. We're not that different. So I, I, I think we need to spend time. We need to educate. We need to get, get to know each other, dispel the myths. And I am convinced that by doing so, that's how we're going to have peace and harmony because that's really what, you know, that, that's what we're all striving for. Yeah, I, I appreciate your your words on that, and appreciate your your model of uh, in, engaging uh, a BLM activist. Um, I spent a good deal of time um, with some friends left of center, uh, even though I'm a right of center kind of guy, politically speaking, uh, typically. Um, and I, I think you're right to try to define right the fringe elements on on either side of the aisle. Uh, and so once I, once I'm able to kind of clear away the noise and, and define what we're actually talking about, um, I think it's, I think your, your two points are, are well taken that, uh, we need some communication and, and 
like you said, some education. Um, and so I, I've been um, very grateful for um, some, some black Christian friends who have uh, been very patient with me uh, to tell me of their experiences in America and their family's experiences. And it reminds me that we're not as as distant distant from the civil rights movement uh, era as we as we think think we are, um, and uh, and our culture is not not as distant from from the effects and, and ramifications of slavery long term um, that that sometimes we think we are. So um, I I think you're right about the, there's an education piece um, and and also a communication piece, and uh, I think we need to be able to try to identify kind of good faith actors on, on both sides of the aisle um, who can uh, kind of parse um, the noise and the extremities on either side. Uh, and then, but still recognize that our nation has some challenges um, that we need to work through together. And uh, so I, I think, I think uh, there's much to talk about uh, to, and to continue uh, in that front. And uh, of course, I'm, I'm also fond of the, the museum of the Bible. We've talked about that, uh, that place here Great place uh, today. Yeah, um, it's a pretty remarkable place, highly endorsed. Um, I do want to ask uh, one more follow-up question. Sure. Um, um, given your experience twofold, both as um, as an immigrant to the States and also someone that's been a part of the administration. And uh, I don't want to ask you a, a gotcha question here, um, but given um, your perspective on um, you know the human rights angle and the persecuted people, What's your view of um, this administration's refugee and immigration policy? Um, at large, we we kind of see refugee intake dwindling to kind of record lows in in recent years, uh, at a at a peak when of of displaced people around the globe. Um, naturally, the United States is not uh, can't be the only destination for refugees and can't solve it on its own. But um, some people in my in my group um, are troubled by the reduction of refugees. So I'm curious how you're thinking about those kinds of angles. Yeah, it's a very, uh, it's a difficult issue, Matthew. And, and just to clarify, actually, I, I was not part of the administration. Um, I was part of the organization. I, I never worked sure, sure. for government. Uh, just, just to be clear on that. But, you know, look, I-, I a good I clarification. That- Thank you. Yeah, it's it's a um, it's it's a really really difficult issue, okay. And you know, I can give you two answers, okay. And I I, I myself I, I I think in my answers you're going to see the dichotomy that I struggle with, okay. Mm-hmm. Speaking as a person of faith, okay. I understand why people are crossing the borders. Uh, I understand why my own family came here and, you know, not everything that the president says or does and the administration says or does do I agree with. Uh, So in my heart, I lament for, I think of my own, I I look at my wife and my kids and I say to myself, okay, if I was living, if I was a poor person in South America, I'm walking to that border. Okay. I'm doing it. I'm, I'm going over that river and I'm, I'm climbing the fence. I'm going to try to give him a better life. So I certainly understand the mindset. And I, I think that represents the overwhelming, you know, look, there are some bad actors that are coming for different reasons, but I, I would probably think uh, that that's, you know, a smaller percentage. So I struggle with that. I understand it. 
I lament and I pray for them. And my, my heart really bleeds. And as an immigrant, I understand that. Okay. And I look around that not just in my community, but in many immigrant communities, these are some of the most grateful, patriotic, productive people in the United States because they have perspective. Immigrants have perspectives. They came from countries where they don't enjoy these freedoms. Okay. And they see their families continuing to suffer. So that's one answer. Okay. But what I, what I wrestle with is practical issues. Okay. The United States can't be, and again, I'm, I'm just putting the issues out there. I'm not necessarily saying that they're, you know, my, my views, but practical arguments. Okay. We can't take every single person that wants to come into the country. There has certainly at minimum needs to be a process. There needs to be laws. These laws need to be observed. We do need to maintain borders. We need to be careful about who we allow to enter this country. It took my family seven years. Okay, seven years. And my, 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 in, in our instance, as I mentioned, my, my, my parents were, my father was recruited here. We still didn't become citizens for seven years. And I can remember being a little kid standing in a federal courtroom taking the oath. So I, 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 I think there has to be a recognition of the realities of both. Okay. It's not realistic to say, we're just going to let every person in here. We just can't. Sure. But at the same time, Part of our mission as Americans is to be merciful and welcome immigrants. And we need to continue to do that. And we can need to continue to embrace the oppressed. So you can see in my answer, and I, I, I think in the sincerity of what I said on both sides of the aisle, there has to be some middle balance. Now, I don't purport yeah. to have an answer what I see politically is people arguing one way or the other. And I don't think that's right. the right approach. And what we have now is, you know, a system that, um, you know, needs improvement. Yeah. I appreciate your candid answer on that. Uh, and I, I think we, we can, we can hear your heart in your answer. So I, I appreciate uh, you fielding that question. No problem. And, and, you know, we're, we're running up against the clock. I know that, that uh, we're, we're almost at 12 and I, I wanted to say that I appreciate you taking the time that and and mentioning that at the end there that that the dichotomy we always deal with these administrations regardless of your of our personal relationships and they, there's some policies that are out there it might be the least worst choice right and I, I dealt with that with administrations all the way through so um, there's policies with the, the, the administration current administration that uh, that I wrestle with and people I get a lot of heat for dealing with them. For, for interacting with the administration and uh and but you, you gotta you gotta be in it and and forward your opinion yeah, otherwise it's not you're if you're not not there not at the table uh the, the you're not they're not going to get an alternate view of what's going on so i appreciate you sharing that duality because it's something that well, it, Matt, it, i deal it, with matt's dealt with and now and you deal with as well yeah, and it is. I mean, you, you know, we're told every day that things are black and white and, you know, things are absolute. And that's really not the case. Um, you know, resolution of some of these issues are not so black and white. They're complex, but they need dialogue. They need understanding, you know. And again, I try to raise my, my kids are still young. I don't think they understand or see any of this. Everybody's our brother. 
you know, I have Sunni brothers, I have Shiite brothers, I have Coptic brothers, I have Protestant brothers, I have Catholic brothers. I think we need to embrace, embrace that. We can disagree on certain things, even things that are pivotal in our life about our faith. We can disagree. That's okay. But we can love each other. We can get along with each other. And certainly, you know, our religion tells us to embrace people that are different. Uh, I think we all were raised with those principles, and I think we need to fight um, to remind people uh, of their moral obligations in that regard. I guess appreciate the, the, the your time and 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 thoughtfulness in in uh, you know kind of dancing with us with some of these questions. It, it means a lot for uh, for you to to take the time out of your schedule and and very I, gracious I, of you to participate. I, I, Matthew, you want want to lead us out? Sure. Uh, well, George Storial, thank you for visiting with us on Crossing Faiths. Um, if folks want to catch your book or otherwise learn more about your your organizations and your nonprofit, uh, where can folks find you? It's available uh, everywhere. And, and and thank you, Matthew, again. And thank you, John. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, uh, any bookstore, Audible. Uh, I'll hold up a copy of it again if anybody's interested in buying it. Uh, I tried very hard to avoid some of the political acrimony, uh, although I avoidably delve into it somewhat, but it's really a compilation of short, simple stories that will give you a different perspective and some insight uh, onto, uh, into a very complicated man. George Soriel, thank you for being a guest on Crossing Phase. Links to his information and more are available at crossingphase.com and we're available anywhere you can listen to podcasts. Thank you both. Thank you. This has been Crossing Phase with Matt Hawkins and John Penna, a podcast of Roll Top Productions. If you like what you hear and would like to help defray the cost of the show, consider sponsoring us on Patreon by visiting crossingphase.com. Crossing Phase is available on all your favorite podcast outlets, including iTunes, Google Podcast, Overcast, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and TuneIn. We'd appreciate your review of our program, especially in the iTunes store. Let us know what you think of the show via Twitter at MTHawk, at JT Pinna, or at Crossing Phase. Music for this episode is courtesy Vajra, whose music is available at thevajratemple.com, Spotify, iTunes, and Amazon. Show notes for this episode and more are available at crossingphase.com.